surrounding communities. It's 7 o'clock at night. That's right, 1900 hours. And you're listening to the Polo Salguero Show, where the heat is on and we educate our community through interviews with professionals. Alrighty, folks, welcome back for another episode of the Polo Salguero Show. Uh, today's guest, we have Mary Beth Pfeiffer, who is uh, an investigative journalist and also an author. And uh, it was interesting because uh, the reason I reached out to uh, Mary Beth Pfeiffer was because during my time in college, both uh, during the undergrad and the graduate portion of my schooling, uh, we actually used one of uh, Mary Beth Pfeiffer's uh, books uh, that she authored for uh, a textbook in our class, and that was Crazy in America, uh, The Hidden Tragedy of Our, uh, of our uh, Criminalized Mentally Ill. And it was a book that really uh, sparked an interest in me and also motivated me as I was um, running for uh, public office to ad- really advocate for uh, mental health uh, reform and, and criminal justice reform in general. Uh, so, uh, Mary Beth Pfeiffer, thank you again for uh, joining us today. Thank you for having me, Paolo. Wonderful. Uh, so, some of our listeners may or may not uh, know you, but for those that don't, could you give us um, kind of a bio about, on yourself and, the experience, and your experience and kind of what you do? Well, I have been a uh, reporter for about 40 years and an investigative reporter, I guess, for about 30 years or so. Um, I have covered many, many um, different um, topics in that time. I was an investigative reporter for a small um, newspaper, daily newspaper in New York State called the Poughkeepsie Journal for most of my investigative reporting tenure. Um, everything from, you know, road safety to school um, uh, programming to what kids eat at lunches for sc- in school to, um, as you said, um, prison um, conditions um, to most recently um, my deep dive into Lyme disease, which we'll get into, I would imagine. But um, suffice to say that I've had a, a long um, experience in investigating municipal corruption and government malfeasance and the things that investigative reporters like to, to delve into and hopefully try to fix. Absolutely. It was, I really enjoyed, uh, well, I enjoyed the sense of reading and how the book was formatted. I don't enjoy necessarily what happened to these individuals that are in the book. Um, and I really liked this book, and, and I've read it multiple times throughout college and then after college because you actually uh, and for those that don't know again the book is crazy in america the hidden tragedy of our criminalized mentally ill and what it does is it follows uh, several individuals throughout their life and their experiences that they that they encounter uh, one having a mental illness and just in general how their life really panned out uh so for those that um could you give us a, a brief uh, kind of summary of uh, like what, what motivated you to write this book in particular? And, and, and later on at the end of the interview, we'll, we'll discuss uh, uh, the, the Lyme disease one. But uh, for right now, for the, this crazy in America, kind of what motivated you to, uh, to write this book? Well, you know, investigative reporters look at problems in society. And in the area that I was covering, we had a, an unusually large number of prisons, um, something on the order of, I think there were 10,000 um, inmates in the county that I covered in, oh, I want to say four prisons, and then others in the surrounding area. Um, and I wanted to know what conditions were like inside those prisons. I um, had certainly heard stories of um, inmates, for example, committing suicide. We had run one or two short articles about incidents such as that, um, about assaults within um, uh, these facilities, um, about the growth um, over um, time of these facilities. We had seen the prison population mushroom in New York State from the 1980s through the early 2000s. Um, Many, many new facilities were built. You know, I wanted to know what was driving those uh, those developments, um, how people were being treated once they got into prison, what was happening to them after they left prison. Was prison doing good for people? Was it, in in effect, um, rehabilitating them or sending them out into communities, you know, in um, the same or, you know, God forbid, worse shape than when they went in? 
so I, I started to, you know, peel away at that onion, if you will, to try and figure out what was going on in those facilities. Um, and, and it takes investigative reporters a long time to figure out highly complex systems such as prisons. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of um, issues to, to contend with from education to health care to mental health care to staffing to, you know, the money that is allocated for prisons. Um, so I, I guess really the first thing that, that kicked this off would be um, a, a report of a suicide in a prison. And that made me think, okay, let's, let's try and find out um, more about that. And I actually got a database of deaths in New York State prisons. You can, um, if you're a, an investigative reporter who knows to um, maneuver around databases and use, um, you know, um, uh, computerized um, uh, systems that actually help you um, to analyze data, um, you can see what the trends are. You can see um, what's going on um, in, in, in this you know, large um, set of data. And anyway, long and short is I, I got a, a, um, a database of all the deaths that had occurred in New York State prisons over, um, I think it was a decade's worth of, of data. And um, I pulled out what I, what I thought was a very interesting trend, and that was that people were dying from suicide, um, as well as there was um, a, a number of AIDS deaths, there were de deaths from homicide, but it was those suicide deaths that really intrigued me and really set me on my path to find out what was going on in our New York State prisons. Absolutely. And in, in finding these, how did you, um, one thing I was always interested in in reading the book is uh, the, the different people that you follow, uh, what was that process like? How many people did you initially interview uh, when did you already know right away that you wanted to write this book, and, and mm -hmm. or was did it start with just interviewing people? Then the the idea then came to you. It took a long time to get to the point of writing the book. You know, it started with that investigative reporting that I would do every couple of months. A new installment um, would appear in the Poughkeepsie Journal of what I found in in prisons, and from you know getting this list of people who had died by suicide, I then tracked down reports of their deaths, investigations that had been done on their deaths. And I learned more and more. And I found out that, that many of these people who had committed suicide in New York State prisons and elsewhere, frankly, um, had long histories of mental illness, that they had been mentally ill long before they were convicted of a crime and sent to prison that they suffered from such things as a bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. And what had happened to them when they got into prison? Well, the, their illness, which really was largely responsible often for putting them in prison because they couldn't obey the normal rules of society, um, also led to further um, punishment once they were in prison. Not only could they not follow the rules outside of prison that, that, that led them to, you know, break into a, a home, often um, for reasons that are not related to stealing things, but because they didn't really know how to function under the normal, um, you know, codes of conduct in, in society. But once they got into prison, they acted out even more. And they ended up, uh, long and short, in a very, very harsh confinement called solitary confinement uh, units, sometimes called the box, sometimes called the hole. And they were kept there for long periods of time. And um, they would self-harm and sometimes kill themselves. So, you know, these stories struck me as, as um, being very tragic, very heartbreaking, and, and very avoidable. So I just kept on chipping away at that, did more and more reporting, and eventually um, decided that this was worth a book because this wasn't something that was only happening in the county I was covering or the state in which I lived, but it was happening all around the United States. So that's really what led to the book. 
Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with Mary, uh, Mary Beth Pfeiffer, who is an investigative journalist, uh, author, uh, and particularly we're talking about the, uh, the, the book she authored, uh, Crazy in America, The Hidden Tragedy of Our Criminalized uh, Mentally Ill. So stick around. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about uh, the, the book itself, some of the stories, and then uh, later on we'll discuss uh, kind of the current projects and, and uh, the, the Lyme uh, disease uh, book and work that Mary Beth Pfeiffer is working on. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. On Tuesday, December 11th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at an unlikely story in Plainville, Jackie McMullen will discuss her new book, Basketball, A Love Story. Many notable living NBA players were interviewed for the book, from Kobe and LeBron to Shaq and Barkley, from Magic and Bird to Bill Russell and Jerry West. The list of coaches in the book includes NBA coaches Phil Jackson and Pat Riley to college greats such as Coach K. The interviews are packed with never-before-heard stories, and you can hear them in person from Jackie herself. The event will be followed by a book signing. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. <sighs> we want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. For over 47 years, Amigo Inc. has been offering services and programs for children and adults with autism spectrum disorders and other disabilities. Located at 33 Perry Avenue in Attleboro, Amigo has been committed to building vital relationships while expanding their community ties on the local level. Amigo provides day programs, transitional planning, and a continuum of services to support all ages. For more information, you can visit their website at amigoinc.org. Living in New England makes you no stranger to the variety of wildlife all around you. But what kinds of species am I looking at? Join us this week on AACS as we showcase amphibians in our backyard and discover the many cold-blooded vertebrates in their unique ecosystems native to the Attleboro area. You can watch this program and all of our quality programs from around the area in high definition on AACS.com. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Salguero Show. Today's guest is Mary Beth Pfeiffer, who is uh, an investigative journalist and also an author. Uh, we're talking about uh, one of her books, uh, Crazy in America, the Hidden, uh, the Hidden Tragedy of Our criminal, uh, Criminalized Mentally Ill. And uh, so we talked a little bit about what kind of motivated you to, uh, to write this. Uh, but another thing I was interested in is how many um, interviews do you think you conducted uh, in the process of uh, just interviewing those that were mentally ill and had uh, experience with our criminal justice system? And then how did you decide to pick the several individuals uh, for this book? Well, I, I likely interviewed scores of people over the course of my reporting on um prisons and the mentally ill. Um, you know, you go to conferences and you meet people. You meet um, social workers. You meet psychiatrists. You meet families who have been touched deeply by mental illness and moreover by um, the uh, ways in which our society marginalizes and mistreats and fails to treat people with mental illness. Um, so it's a very, very... Um, you know, um, thorough look that a reporter does before, you know, even putting pa pen to paper and starting to write a book like this. Um, it involves also repeating, uh, uh, reading a lot of reports, you know, government reports and reports that are put out by advocacy groups. And there are a lot of them out there who are doing good work on behalf of people with mental illness and on behalf of inmates in prisons. And, you know, I just would like to make a point before we go into my, you know, individual cases that I wrote about, to say that we in America have far too much prison capacity. And that's really at the heart of my book. 
that we have too many prisons, that we have too many jail beds, and we have too many people who are incarcerated. It has become a way of treating a certain population of people in America, not just the mentally ill, but people who have drug problems, people who have financial problems and maybe turn to drugs to to make some money, Um, people who, um, uh, you know, are, are... uh, prisons are filled with um, people of color. So we have huge racial inequalities in our prisons. Um, we have about still, and this is the same as when I wrote my book 10 years ago, about 2 million people who are incarcerated in America. So we need to get past being such a punitive culture, a culture that solves problems by punishing people and starting to look at people rather um, as, um, as, as um, entities that can be um, taught, that can be nurtured, that need um, more support from government, from um, our um, social institutions like, um, uh, you know, um, uh, social work programs and education programs and so on. We just need to take a, a, a better look and a, and a different look at how we treat social dysfunction. And rather than um, punishing it, we have to help people who suffer from it. Absolutely. I completely agree. And it was just uh, everything you said, it was just uh, I completely echo everything. And it was, uh, you know, we, we look at our mass incarceration rates. You know, I always say, like, somebody shouldn't have to go to a jail or be incarcerated to receive help. You know, I, I really don't think that's the, you know, our, our correctional system, in my opinion, should be more of a rehabilitation uh, as opposed, well, it, it, the, punitive and also rehabilitation, I think this should be a mix of it in our correctional system. But it's also, uh, after this election, too, we just see in Florida how they passed the uh, certain felons that are able to vote now, which helped about 1.5 million people that I, I was reading uh, uh, the article the other day on. So it's, I think, slowly we're, we're making our way there and we're slowly getting uh, to a better state of uh, how we're treating these individuals that are incarcerated. Uh, but uh, so th- this book, you follow several people. And I was just curious, out of the, all the people you've interviewed, how did you uh, narrow it down to these stories? Was there something specific about each person that you really felt uh, that compelled you to include them in, in your book? Well, each of my stories um, is, each of the people I, I, I um, wrote about in each story, there's six separate stories or six individuals, um, became very dear to me, as did their families. And one of the key things that I needed in order to write their story, because there are many stories like this out there, but I needed families who were willing to share their pain and their experiences and the trials they went through to, to help their family member who was mentally ill. So, for example, I wrote in my first three chapters about a woman by the name of Shane. And um, Shane was just a terrific story of a, when she was 14 years old and lived in Iowa, she basically um, became mentally ill. She started to exhibit the symptoms of someone who um, had schizophrenia, which she has suffered with for a lifetime. And at that time, um, the only way that her family could get care for Shane, who was acting out terribly, who was scaring members of her family, who could not be controlled, was to sign her over to the state. And in doing so, her family lost all control for the rest of her growing up years and thereafter. She went to a mental facility, and there she stayed, um, basically um, going from one facility to another until she was finally um, set free to the streets. Um, I also wrote about um, people with with drug problems, Um, a, a young man by the name of Luke, who lived in Texas and who was experimenting, as as many young people do, with drugs like ecstasy and um, other things, and who, um, in the course of that, um, came into contact with the criminal justice system. Um, 
Luke suffered from depression. So that combination of using drugs and having depression and then um, um, crossing afoul of the um, criminal justice system ended him in jail. And um, as with Shane, who was um, eventually um, arrested for a number of things, and what happens also with people who have mental illness, they sort of climb this ladder of, um, you know, shoplifting or, um, you know, um, acting inappropriately in, in public, of loitering, of harassment, um, to, um, you know, um, building a rap sheet, if you will, of offenses that are often petty in nature to begin with, but that lead to, to larger things and also that lead to larger penalties because, you know, if you are a first offender, you're often just let off with a slap on the wrist. But but if you, um, you know, are first and third and fourth and fifth, the um, penalties uh, increase. And you, you stand more of a, um, a chance of actually being incarcerated, of going to jail. And then what often happens to people who are in jail is they have um, incursions with the, the uh, corrections officers. So I found that this was a pattern among the people that I spoke with, that they went to jail, but they wound up staying in jail for long periods of time um, because they they had um, assaults, quote-unquote, on their record because of how they interacted with the, the, the jail or the prison staff. Um, so they sort of climbed this ladder. They had more and more time. They had... Um, worse and worse um, experiences when they were in jail, and that often led to um, self-harm, sometimes to suicide. Um, But there were uh, were other ways uh, in which um, people that I dealt with, um, you know, led to, um, you know, bad outcomes for them, um, in particular when they acted out in public and police were called. Um, in one case, uh, a young man by the name of Peter, who lived for many years uneventfully with his mother. His mother took great care of him in Florida. They were they were sort of a great pair together. She was there to always um, support and nurture and take care of him when his mental illness would get out of control. He was officially diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, but one day, she just simply couldn't... Um, handle him, the police were called, and he got into fisticuffs, into some sort of altercation with police, and they had to wrestle him to the ground, and the outcome was was not good. I I won't really kind of give the the punchline, so to speak, of what happened in that case, but um, it was a very, very tragic outcome, and um, this is what happens to people on the streets with mental illness, in prisons with mental illness. Neither police nor p- prison staff are schooled or trained adequately to deal with them. Um, and this is what we need to change. And this is why I wrote about those six people and their their tragic and protracted um, adventures, if you will, with the criminal justice system. Absolutely. All righty, folks. We're in studio with Mary Beth Pfeiffer, who is an investigative journalist and also an author. We're discussing her book, uh, Crazy in America, The the Hidden Tragedy of Our uh, Criminalized Mentally Ill. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to ask a few more questions about this book. And and later on, we'll we'll discuss some of the stories in here, and then we will discuss her... uh, her current project. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Caring Santa is on his way to Emerald Square Mall on December 2nd. Caring Santa is a private photo experience for children with special needs and their families. Children will have the opportunity to visit with Santa and have their photo taken with him. Emerald Square Mall will make necessary adjustments to the environment to support the sensory, physical, and other developmental needs of children of all abilities for this special event. Caring Santa will be at the mall on Sunday, December 2nd from 8 to 10 a.m. You sit down at your table, you get your card. 25 squares hold the key. Which one will it be? I-25, O-72, or Lucky B-13? Which one will be the square that makes you jump up and shout, Bingo! 
The Attleboro Elks Lodge 1014 hosts bingo each Sunday at 887 South Main Street. Open to the public, the kitchen opens at 5 p.m. with a variety of food available. Bingo starts at 6 p.m. Prizes are awarded and proceeds support Elks Charities. For further details, you can visit attleboroelks.org or you can call 508-222-5502. Remember, Elks Care, Elks Share. There are many sounds in your day-to-day life. There are sounds that wake you up. Sounds that make you smile. (laughs) Sounds that energize you. (laughs) And sounds that help you relax. But there are some sounds that can alert you to danger and can help save lives. Wireless emergency alerts, now on many mobile devices. Use a unique sound and vibration to bring you information about severe weather events, amber alerts, or other emergencies in your area. With critical information from local sources you know and trust, you can be in the know, wherever you are. For more information, visit ready.gov alerts. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Girl Show. Today's guest is Mary Beth Pfeiffer, who is an investigative journalist as well as an author. Uh, we're discussing uh, The Crazy in America, uh, The Hidden Tragedy of Our Criminalized uh, Mentally Ill book. Uh, this was a book that I encountered during um, my undergrad and later on to my graduate school that we used as uh, one of our textbooks. And we're discussing some of the stories. Uh, one thing I wanted to touch upon, too, is... Like you've also mentioned, uh, Mary Beth, is that some of these uh, behaviors due to their mental illness kind of lead them into these encounters with police. And, you know, it's not this is something that I've also have mentioned, too, uh, as I was campaigning for, you know, office. And then later on in school, I would advocate for this is that even we see this even in our school system where. Uh, students with ADHD or ADD or specific illnesses, they end up getting kicked out. And, they, you know, I did a, a, a research project on the school to prison pipeline. And it was sad to see how some of these, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest one I would see a lot was ADHD and how some of these behaviors due to this would end, would end up getting these students kicked out. And, and, and then furthermore, onto these encounters with police is that, and, and you touched upon it too, is that the training that they receive and, and, and I also think, uh, you know, in teaching, I feel like you should get uh, training with this, too. And that was a big thing I saw because I worked in, um, in residence life at one point in college, and we received eight hours of mental health training. And then during my classes, I would talk to certain correction officers or people that went to the police academies, and they would say, you know, we don't talk about this at all. Or, you know, I've learned more in this one class of mental health than, than I did my entire time at the academy. And that, that's what sparked my, it really, it frustrated me and got me to advocate for it because when we look at a criminal justice system, and, and I was looking at more of a correctional system for my research, the, the mental health training isn't universal. Some receive it, some don't. And then those that do, it isn't as in-depth as it could be. Or you look at some of the other things they were training on, like firearms training received, you know, I can't remember the number, but just for the example, like 18 hours as opposed to mental health that we get like two hours, you know, and that was a big thing that I saw uh, too. So do you think training is one of the biggest uh, uh, steps that we could take as a society for our police system and and correctional system and criminal justice system in general to really help uh, with this issue? Well, Paulo, as as you said, um, you do see a movement forward um, on this road, that things are, are getting better over time. And the, um, the training issue certainly has improved in the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years. We see that uh, mental health um, is built into the Correctional um, Academy um, curriculum here in New York. I think maybe one day is devoted to um, mental health issues. Um, of, I think it's maybe a four- or eight-week course. So it's not a lot of time, but it's something. You know, the the short answer to your question is, um, yes, um, training is really essential, and yes, we need to do a lot more of it. We don't do nearly enough. 
But, you know, what, what's really at the heart of all this is we have to decide what kind of country we want to be, what kind of culture we uh, want to, to embrace. And we have for so long embraced a punitive culture or a, a mean culture, if you will. We, um, you know, we, we say that we're fighting against bullying online, but you just see a lot of bullying kind of behavior, even on TV and in social interactions on, in entertainment. And you see the, the messages that often come from the very top of this country being, um, you know, it's, it's every man for himself, so to speak, and, and not really um, expressing a lot of um, empathy or compassion for people who are down on their luck, for people who can't make their way, who pe- for people who need help. So, you know, I think if we started there, if we started to, to try and... Um, um, I don't know, foster a, uh, an ethic that says that punishment really isn't the be-all and end-all of, of uh, solving uh, problems, even of crime in society, but rather an ethic that says helping people, even providing more education in prisons, um, being a little bit more compassionate, I think would go really a, a, a long ways um, yes, we need to train people, but these people are also coming out of a culture that reinforces a an idea and a belief system that that trumps um, anything else, and and that says punishment is the primary um, way to get people to do what you want them to do. Absolutely. Alrighty, so let's talk a little bit about uh, one of the stories, the one story that really stuck out to me and really, and I don't know if it was because it was probably the, the first one that, uh, the first chapter in the book, but it, w- it was Shane's story. And, uh, and the thing I like to tell people is if you, if you guys, I re- highly recommend anyone to, to read this book. But the other part is these stories, there are six in here, but it's, there are a lot of cases that uh, end similarly to some of them, and also they encounter similar problems throughout our country. It's not just uh, this isn't a rare case or a, some of these outcomes, they aren't rare. It happens, you can type in on Google and, and online, you know, mental health, police encounter or a correctional encounter, and you'll see tons of history, tons of stories. Uh, but I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about, if you could talk a little bit about Shane, kind of her story, and then, um, and then I'll uh, I'll ask some questions later on about uh, some things in the in the chapter. Okay, um, Shane's story is very dear to me. Um, she is just a terrific person. She is has suffered incredibly at both the hands of the um, mental health uh, institutions in Iowa and the um, penal institutions. But she is, in many ways, a real survivor. I, I visited her in a mental institution during the course of my research. And um, she has, has thought for her entire life that she is a Native American, that she has um, Indian, quote-unquote, blood in her, her veins. And, um, you know, you could call that part of her, her delusional thinking, that she um, would like to go into the woods when she was younger and do these sort of Native American dances and seek inspiration from nature and and the wolves. And um, she would sing Native American um, uh, songs of her own kind of composition. And, you know, she... She very clearly, and I'm not saying that this is related, but very clearly and early on, suffered from some sort of mental illness. And um, she would act out, and she at one point set a fire, and she attacked a police officer with a knife, and she became um, very um, violent at times, and she would think things that weren't true which is often the case with people with schizophrenia or other kinds of delusional disorders. And she was diagnosed with, um, you know, many kind of different iterations of mental illness, which often also happens 
with people with mental illness. They get different diagnoses over time. Um, but she lived in a small town in Iowa um, with a family um, of, um, I think she had five brothers and sisters, um, a, a mother and a father who loved her dearly and did everything they could to support and to help her. But she was clearly at, at beyond their control, beyond their ability to to take care of. Um, so she went into a, a mental institution, as I said earlier, at the age of 14. And she was put on a lot of different uh, medications. That's, that's what you did in those days, and largely I think that's still what, what is done. Um, but over time, the mental um, institutions of uh, Iowa, as across the nation, became smaller and smaller, and they couldn't take care of of her anymore, and she was discharged to the streets. And this, you know, the big picture here is that in the United States, we had many, many people, I think it was up to a half million people at one time, who were in mental institutions. And then the laws changed, and the the, the, uh, case um, uh, cases that were heard in court came down with rulings that said, we cannot hold people unless they are a danger to themselves or to someone else. So that made it very difficult for mental institutions to hold on to people, not that they really wanted to. They saw these these new um, rulings as a way to basically shift the responsibility for people with mental illness from the hospitals to other social systems. And um, what we saw happen was people with mental illness moving from these large impersonal um, facilities, these mental hospitals, um, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and instead turning up in the 80s, 90s, and, and beyond in prisons. It was really a wholesale move from one uh, form of housing, which was a bit more, you know, the hospitals, a bit more compassionate to another form of, of housing, um, prisons that were far less compassionate and um, provided far less care for the mentally ill. So that, long and short, is what happened to, um, to Shane. Um, and um, she was in- incarcerated a couple of times for different things. Um, and what happened to her, what often happens to people with mental illness, she ended up in what they call in Iowa the hole. Um, it's a small um, cell. Um, it's usually windowless. Maybe a tiny bit of um, light comes in from from the door. Um, maybe there's a small window, but you are basically deprived of all human contact for all but usually an hour a day they let you out. Um, your meals are delivered through a slot in the, uh, the door. Um, and, um, you know, this sort of confinement, this very, very rigid um, confinement where you're deprived of human um, companionship and, and stimulation is is very difficult on someone who um, isn't mentally ill. Now, you can only imagine what it does to people who are delusional, who see things, who hear things, who aren't of their um, full compa- mental capacities. And it did that to Shane, and she did horrible self um mutilating things to herself, and she is now blind as a result of her um, incarceration in Iowa facilities. And, you know, it it, it didn't just happen to her once that she was put in the the hole and she hurt herself. It happened twice. So um, it's just an unforgivable thing that happened to her and, and, um, and, and, and left her permanently scarred. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with Mary Beth uh, Pfeiffer, who is uh, an investigative journalist who has received many awards, also an author. Uh, we're discussing uh, Crazy in America, the hid- Hidden Tragedy of Our Criminalized Mentally Ill. Uh, when we come, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask a little bit more questions about uh, Shane, and then we'll talk uh, kind of the current projects that Mary Beth is working on, and then uh, we'll start to wrap things up. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. On January 10th at 4.30 p.m. at the Attleboro Library, Gabriela Vieira of Webster Bank will present a workshop titled Preventing Elder Financial Abuse. 
The incidence of financial exploitation of elders and vulnerable adults is growing nationally. Fraudulent telemarketing schemes and scam artists increasingly target elders, resulting in significant financial losses. This workshop will provide an overview of the signs and symptoms of financial exploitation and fraud, and strategies for protecting assets. If you are interested in attending, you can call the Attleboro Council on Aging at 774-203-1900. Looking to make a difference? Have extra time during the week? The Literacy Center is looking for you. By becoming a volunteer at the Literacy Center, you could help someone learn to read, study for their citizenship test, learn English, and even help them with their high school equivalency. For more information on how to volunteer or join the next tutor training, you can view our website at theliteracycenter.com or call 508 508- Two two six three six zero three. The Literacy Center, building a better community. We first opened about ten years ago. We were we we're small, just a few of us, but it was exciting. I always dreamt of having my own business. It was kind of slow at first, but things started picking up. We had big plans, but in our wildest dreams, we never, never thought we'd have this much work. Yeah, with so many businesses caught off guard by the storm, Reed Waste Management has never been busier. What will become of your business after a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency, and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now, before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, Visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sogiro Show. Today's guest is Mary Beth Pfeiffer, who is an investigative journalist as well as an author. Uh, We're talking about Crazy in America, the uh, hidden tragedy of our criminalized uh, mentally ill. And we're discussing one of the stories um, in this book, uh, involving Shane, as uh, Mary Beth uh, pointed out. Uh, w- one thing that I found interesting about this chapter, Mary Beth, is kind of uh, how you implement some of the writings that uh, Shane had done to her family throughout um, her time. And I, I wanted to read one. Um, it, it reads, I am still in the hole. I spoke to the prison psychologist last week. She doesn't think it is healthy for me to be in here this long. She said she was going to say something, but I think she forgot. I don't really get a lot of attention in here. Day after day, uh, day after day, hour after hour, I sit in here alone. I don't usually talk much anyway, but it would be nice if someone would stop by uh, my door. Please don't. Uh, please just don't seem to. People just don't seem to have time for me. Uh, being alone is torment. This, when I was reading this, it kind of put a really personal touch to it in the sense you you really it puts you in that situation. Um, uh, one, how did you, you come up with the idea to in, include these uh, letters? And and then after, kind of, what, what, what was Shane's situation here? We, we have the psychology, we, we hear Shane saying the psychologist says it's not healthy for be, to her to be in there. But wh- how did it continuously end up that she's still in the, in, in the hole or solitary confinement? Well, the bottom line is that psychologist who provided whatever care she did or he did to Shane wasn't the one who was determining whether Shane would be in the hole or not. There's a much bigger kind of structure and way of doing things in prisons that really calls the shots. And prisons, first and foremost, are places of control and places of punishment. So if you break the prison rules, there are these um, procedures that that they go through. You know, you have a, a hearing to determine what's going to happen to you, how you're you're going to be punished. Sometimes the punishment may be that you have to, you know, uh, do, um, you know, uh, some sort of um, duty or something for a period of time, you know, certain chores and so on. And sometimes, you know, the, the, the worst case is you're put in what they call the hole. In New York, they call it the box or solitary um, housing unit. And, you know, in, in doing my research, um, I was astounded to find out how long people in some of these units. Now, at that time, and I, I don't think it's as bad now, but I, I don't think it's appreciably better, um, the average time that people were in um, these um, solitary confinement units were 
in Texas, five years. In Massachusetts, four years. In New York, three years. Amazing. Um, but, you know, the, the, the quote that you um, read from Shane is one of the things that really tell you that this is a human being. This is a person who is lucid, who can think, who can express. And, and even when she wasn't in that state, it really just cries out when she expresses herself in this way for a, a um, view that says, are we doing our best for this woman? And when I used quotes like that, when I came across those, those uh, letters that she had written that, and that were provided by her family, it was just a beautiful way of painting a picture of a woman and how she was treated by the system. And that's what, you know, I as an investigative reporter tried to do. I tried both to lay out those, those facts and figures about how many people were putting in these facilities and how long and, and we're doing it for and how much it's costing society. But I also tried to do it in a way that brought people like Shane to life. And her own words are perhaps one of the best ways to really do that to show who she was and how she suffered. Absolutely. And I can truly say I think uh, your goal of that was accomplished because I can say even in uh, some of the classes that I took when we had this book, the students that typically weren't engaged or, you know, maybe sometimes they, w- they weren't, they didn't participate too much in class discussion or something like that. But when it came down to these stories, you really heard a lot of students putting out their opinions on this. And I really think the, the letters, I mean, for me, it really did because whether you were watching the news or we're reading something, I, I, you know, we see tons of these statistics, but it's one thing to see the numbers and it's another to really meet someone who's gone through it or really hear the stories that this, this is real life. You know what I mean? It's not, you're not reading a fictional book. This is a real story and it's a real person that went through this, you know, and it's, uh, I've really enjoyed uh, that element that you've incorporated in that, including the, the letters that she wrote. Uh, for her family. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention to people is that when we talk about uh, these illnesses worsening in, in these uh, correctional facilities, uh, that it's not an opinion. We're not giving an opinion. This is a fact. There are tons of uh, studies out there that have proven that those with mental illnesses that go into these situations, their illness will worsen over a period of time. And that's it's a fact. I just want people to know that we're not, that's not an opinion that we're, we're stating. It is, it's fact. There's tons of studies out there that have uh, proven that. Um, and there are court rulings that have said that people um, basically decompensate. They get worse when they're put under these awful conditions and that we need to um, reduce our reliance on them. So, yes, you're correct. It is a proven fact. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I just want to make sure we mention that because I don't want anyone saying, oh, well, they're just stating their, uh, their opinion. No, it's like you said, there's court documents. I mean, it's, that's what saddens me is that there's tons of proof. And I'm trying my best not to get worked up because I really get uh, worked up when I discuss this stuff. But it's, it annoys me that and anytime there's a proven fact or, like you said, court rulings, and yet we're still – it's a slow process to getting – where we should be, and it's just something that has just bothered me and continues to bother me. I just hate when there's tons of evidence out there, and yet uh, some of the stuff is denied. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but okay, so we, we talked, uh, we kind of uh, explained uh, Shane's situation, and I don't want to uh, talk, I don't want to say too much about the stories, because I, I would really, I highly recommend people um, I'll get the book and actually reading it, because it really puts everything into uh, perspective. But if, uh, again, for those listening, it's uh, Crazy in America, The Hidden uh, hidden Tragedy of Our Criminalized Mentally Ill by Mary Beth Pfeiffer. Uh, But currently, you're also working on uh, another project, or there's another book you have. It's uh, Lyme, uh, The First Epidemic of Climate Change. Did you want to talk a little bit about uh, the book and kind of the work you're currently working on? Um, Sure. I um, started to... (coughs) Excuse me. Investigate Lyme disease in 2012, 
And similar to what I did uh, in the arena of prisons and people with mental illness, I wrote a series of articles for the newspaper that I was working at at that time about problems with Lyme disease. And um, this led to a book five years later. And what I found as an investigative reporter was that we have a very, very poor understanding of how Lyme disease works, of how to diagnose it, of how to treat it, of how to um, solve the lingering problems that people, people suffer even after being treated for Lyme disease. And, you know, I, I didn't think that Lyme disease was an investigative story. Um, so it took me a long time to get to looking into it um, as a reporter. Because, you know, with investigative reporting, you look for ways in which, you know, systems are falling down on the job, where there's maybe corruption, where um, the government isn't doing what it should be doing. And, you know, I had this idea that, okay, you know, there's a Lyme disease test, we can get tested, we can uh, get diagnosed, and yes, there are these antibiotics and we can take them. But it's a lot more um, nuanced than that, a lot more complicated than that. Um, and there are basically many, many thousands of people who are infected with Lyme disease every year, including in Massachusetts, which is a, a leading state for Lyme disease, who are diagnosed, who are treated, but who continue to suffer even after treatment. Um, beyond that, there are people who don't um, get diagnosed because the test does not work for them. So we sort of have problems at both ends, problems identifying who has Lyme disease and treating them. Some of them will get better, by the way. Not all of them still suffer. But then on the other end, we have people for whom the, the therapies don't work entirely. So my goal with this book called um, Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change, is really to call attention to how huge and growing this problem is. It's spreading around the globe and to the very many health and medical quandaries that are associated with it that we still haven't solved or figured out. Absolutely. Alrighty, folks, we're in studio with Mary Beth Pfeiffer, who uh, is an investigative journalist, uh, an author. We discussed uh, the crazy in America, the hid uh, hidden tragedy of our criminalized uh, mentally ill. Uh, we mentioned uh, her newest book, uh, Lyme, the First Epidemic of Climate Change. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back, and then uh, we will get to our uh, history question that we usually ask to wrap things up. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. 